Hey everyone, it's Reed. Before we get started today, I'd love you to go to lincolnproject.us slash action dash center. That's lincolnproject.us slash action dash center. Join the army that's going to help at the grassroots level make sure that pro-democracy candidates are victorious this November and get us into 2023 with a safe and healthy democracy. Only you can do it. Again, lincolnproject.us slash action dash center. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by Trig Vielsen, Senior Advisor to The Lincoln Project and President of Viking Strategies, LLC, a Washington, D.C.-based public affairs and political consulting firm. Trigvi, welcome back. Thanks, Reed. Good to be back. I'm also rejoined once again by Senior Advisor to The Lincoln Project and former Executive Director of the Michigan Republican Party, Jeff Timmer. Jeff, great to have you back. I am glad to be here, Reed. So guys, today I want to talk about some of the incredible work y'all have been doing about really diving into the details of what the 2022 midterms look like, what the stakes are, what our strategy is going to be, and the states and races we're taking a close look at. So let's get going right away. So Trigby, this is something that you and I have talked about, I think, not only on the podcast, but you've also been on many of our streaming shows and, and have a long history in places like Eastern Europe that are battling authoritarianism, building democratic coalitions. So let's talk about the game we know, or we did know, versus the game we're forced to play today in an America that is increasingly unlike anything politically any of us in living memory can remember. You know, when people are thinking about elections, typically here in the United States, and we would do this, we would think about who's going to control the House, who's going to control the Senate, who's going to get elected governor in states. We might think about state legislatures. And the entire system is set up on that. You know, if you look at both of the major political parties, you know, they have the DGA or the RGA that are about governor's races. They have the Senate committees that are about Senate races, House committees. The reality is in the game that we're playing and in the game that Trump's playing, it isn't about any of those things. It's about power and gaining power and taking power where it exists. And that might be trying to have the speaker's gavel and all the chairmanships of committees in the House or the Senate, or it might be about winning key governor's races, or it may even bleed down into who's the secretary of state or the election commissioner in Maricopa County, if those are elected positions. And so they're looking at things by election by election in terms of their long-term agenda, which is to take power and maintain it. And we have to adjust our thinking, not to just what the world looks like on November 9th, 2020, the day after the election, but we have to look at everything through the eye of how do we ensure that on January 20th, 25, we have a peaceful transition of power to the duly elected person as president of the United States. But Jeff, I mean, you have experience in what I think is the battleground of battlegrounds, Michigan. And, you know, as Trigvi said, elections are typically binary choices, right? In the United States, we have a two-party system. Occasionally a libertarian or a green jumps in. Occasionally, you know, you have a black swan independent candidate who comes out and does something. But for the most part, candidates run with either an R or a D behind their name because we all know that that's how voters identify. It's sort of the precondition of getting someone's vote. 
even though we know that R and D have evolved, I think especially R, maybe devolved, it gives voters sort of shorthand for what they're seeing. But in what you're seeing now, you know, what Trigby said about legislative races, it used to be that in a campaign, and maybe these are gauzier days than they ever existed, like a candidate had some level of principle they stood for. And that principle was a worldview politically, ideologically, and then ultimately that filtered down to policy. We don't really have that anymore, certainly on the Republican side. And I think it seems that on the Democratic side, as Rick Wilson likes to say, you know, the Democrats followed the Republicans into the culture war, and that's where they go to die politically. You know, looking over these last couple of years, I know you both have gone through this as I have, kind of having to relearn the muscle memory, trying to uh, separate ourselves from that knee-jerk partisan reaction, from recognizing that policy isn't driving anything, ideology doesn't matter, that this is all a, a zero-sum game of power, where power has always been central to the game of politics. It was predicated on policy and ideology. It wasn't, you know, none of the people we worked with, we never worried that they were looking to supplant democracy itself. And when we started talking about this, the way that races are looked at, the way that races are scored, whether it's the DGA or the Cook Political Report or Larry Sabato, and looking at this from a purely partisan standpoint, we started thinking that that's the wrong way to look at this. We need to come up with something that's more of a democracy index. And where do these races rate on the threat and the fulcrum when it comes to whether or not we'll be able to have a functional democracy in this country after 2022 and after 2024? Well, and that's right. And Trigby, as we have talked about previously, we think the Republican Party is largely driven by authoritarian, white nationalist, evangelical Christian stuff at this point with people like Tucker Carlson and Donald Trump at the top of it. But, you know, as we look at these races and the way that Jeff described that the sort of calculus of the matrix by where you look at it, which is we still believe that in a given day, probably in this moment, we're better off with the Democrat winning, better off with the Republican losing. But if you take it a level deeper, you could say, OK, but if a Republican is going to win, is there one that we believe is more likely to uphold the Constitution, the will of the voters? And that's something that I think is fundamentally different than the way you talked about it, the binary RGA versus DGA, RNC versus DNC, because to them, they just want whoever gets through a primary to win. They don't really care. I mean, I think about when I was doing this kind of stuff, and Timur and I have talked about this a lot as we went through the process of looking at, you know, 350 elections, primaries and generals across the country. When I used to do this, like, for example, I was doing this at one point for Republicans in the U.S. Senate years ago. You know, I didn't really care who won the governor's race or the governor's primary unless it impacted who was running for the Senate. I didn't really care about House races at all unless it was in a really swing part of the state that maybe the candidate came from the same part and turnout was going to matter greatly or in some demographically important part of the state. Never really drilled down that far because they really weren't connected. But, you know, to your point, Reed, if you look at, for example, the Republican governor's primary in Arizona, you have Carrie Lake, who talks about overturning and decertifying the 2020 elections, running against Karen Robson, who is a sort of John McCain, Ducey wing, and probably would follow Ducey's pattern in not doing that. So one of those two is going to get through the primary. 
And for the forces of democracy, clearly Robson is a better choice than Lake, who would be all in on sedition. One of them is going to face Katie Hobbs. And, you know, there's a challenge here because if you really care about democracy, you would prefer to have Robson get through. But it's also true that if you're simply thinking about winning governor's races and you're at the DGA, for example, Hobbs probably has a better chance of beating Lake than of beating Robson because Robson comes from the center. But Jeff, I mean, even thinking about that, that's how we would all think about it. In fact, I might still think about it that way. And to Trigley's point, like in a general election matchup, which is a better one for me, but also there's the tangible intangible, which is Carrie Lake is nuts. She'll say and do anything. I mean, remember that this is the same woman who in the same speech where she talked about how she took ivermectin and she'd never felt better, also said that if she were governor of Arizona, she would figure out how to deploy Arizona law enforcement to Washington, D.C. to apprehend Anthony Fauci and bring him back to Arizona for trial. <laughs> I mean, like, is that, I guess the question is, too, is like, do you even want the opportunity or the chance for someone like that to get through? That's where you have to kind of separate the head and the heart. At this point, the best case scenario for those who are concerned about the future of democracy is a choice between two candidates, Katie Hobbs and Robson, who are not going to be threats to democracy, who aren't going to be putting their thumb on the scale when it comes to counting the votes after the next election versus Carrie Lake, where we know that she'll do and say anything. You're right. She's, she's eating horse paste and probably drinking filtered urine just because she thinks it will get her votes not because she believes it'll save her. The point is that the democracy needs to be the kind of the central organizing principle that's motivating the way we look at these races, not partisanship. As Jeff and I went through the process, right? So we were rating races on three factors. One is how important are they to the 2024 election? Two, how important are they for control of the state's election apparatus or Congress? And three, how much illiberalism is in the race? Here's the thing you got to think about with Arizona, right? Presidential elections in the United States, this is just a fact. There's four states that really matter. Not that all states don't matter, but ultimately there's four states that sit on the dividing line. Arizona, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. And the reality is if Carrie Lake is the governor of Arizona and Arizona votes Democrat, she will back the state legislature in a way that Doug Ducey didn't in overturning the election there. And if you take that state off the playing field and you have similar governor's races in those other three states where you have Democrat governors and some other statewide officials who are further down the food chain that are the only block to that, then the question becomes, if you're sitting there, yes, you'd prefer Katie Hobbs in a perfect world for policy, but what you might be getting in two years is the inability to choose on a national level what kind of policy you're going to get for the foreseeable future because you aren't going to have the states available. Who wins them won't matter. But Jeff, let me ask you this. As sort of we, we zoom out a little bit. We'll zoom back in on Arizona a little later. But as we zoom back out, we're looking at the game we knew versus the game we're playing now. And from a macro perspective in the country, it seems like, you know, I have this trope and Trigvi and the listeners have heard it too much, right? Which is Democrats are still playing chess and Republicans are still happily eating the pieces. And the Republican Party is moving 
reactionary by leaps and bounds. The Democrats are moving steadily, I'd say, to their left, I think. How do you see this, you know, sort of universally? Because it seems like you have, not surprisingly, the noisiest of the noisy on the far right, super far right, and the far left. Then you have a basically rump establishment in the Republican, a fearful establishment, though majority of the Democratic Party. And then you've got, you know, 60, 70 percent of the country in the middle who hates everybody. It seems to keep bringing up that phrase, the game we know versus the game that is being played, that the way that most people look at candidates in their choices before them, the way that most reporters write about or cover the races in their states, or if they're covering them from a national perspective, look at them and examine them through that policy, through that ideological prism, when that is largely irrelevant in terms of the magnitude of the outcome of these races. There's this kind of built-in muscle memory of examining and measuring what a candidate brings based upon that policy or ideological positions of the old days when it's largely irrelevant right now with this larger fight for democracy, yet that's not ever the context or seldom is the context that people look at these choices and they kind of revert back to this, well, yeah, you know, if Trump gets reelected, you know, we might never have another free and fair election again, but socialism, look over here, socialism. And it's just not an equivalent choice, yet it's being presented as one. But Trigvi, to Jeff's point, though, Republicans have been calling Democrats socialists for the better part of 50 years. Democrats have not done generally a good job of pushing back on that. They have relied on once-in-a-generation candidates like Bill Clinton or Barack Obama to sort of carry them across the line. But now you have a situation in which you have DeSantis, you know, all of them, Trump screaming socialist, socialist, socialist. Remember, they ran the Bernie Sanders playbook against Biden in 20, almost worked. But the Democrats, and I guess I would say more the progressive side than this, are either unwilling or unable to understand why that is effective and counter it. So whether or not it's the Green New Deal or erasing college loan debt, they keep walking into the bear trap. You know, I mean, President Biden said during his State of the Union address, we will not defund the police. We will refund the police. Then Cory Bush goes out and says, no, we won't. And then we haven't heard about it again. And like those are cultural issues, but they have practical outcomes, which is black and brown communities don't want no police. They want better police. If you are at the border and there are folks coming across, you know, folks seeking asylum. And, you know, the only thing the folks in those border towns know is there are more people coming and there is no state or federal relief for the organizations, public, private or governmental to contend with that, you know, when you have voters across the country who are seeing spikes in cost of living, spikes in housing, all of the things that we're all going through, and all you hear is Republicans talking about how Disney is full of pedophiles and Democrats want to give away free college for kids who went to Swarthmore and got a Sanskrit degree. So it's kind of funny, as you know, Reed, I have my seven rules for dealing with autocrats. And number one is play the game you're in, not the one you wish you were playing. And rule number three is don't hand the other side battering rams with which to beat you. The Democrats seem to be masters, certainly the far left, but the Democrat Party as a whole, at handing battering rams for people like DeSantis and others to beat them with. The culture wars become something 
that Republicans, and we all were on the side of doing this when we we're doing Republican politics, you drag the Democrats into talking about culture wars, particularly in the Midwest, you know, a state like where Timmer is in Michigan or my home state of Wisconsin, you drag them into talking about what Eastern or far West liberal progressives are talking about. You drag Democrats into having to defend that in places like Michigan or Wisconsin, and you know that it's going to be a net winner for you. The one thing we could always count on when we were running Republican campaigns was the fact that the Democrats would play along, right? <laughs> Hasn't changed, unfortunately. They could be baited into the culture war and then immediately put on defense. You could count on that. It was clockwork. And then you could count on them to bore people to fucking tears with their white paper defense of everything, right? If you only understood where I'm coming from on this policy, you'll reject the Republican and vote for me. Meanwhile, the Republicans over here saying, they're trying to take away your kids. And how do you react to an emotional argument versus this intellectual white paper? You can always rely on the Democrats to play along with our game, and that hasn't changed, and that's dangerous. You know, it's a great example of that, Reed, is Kentucky. Like, every time there's a federal race, when I talk to people on the Democrat side, they're just stunned that McConnell and Rand Paul and Republicans have the luck they have in Kentucky, right? It's relatively easy for a Democrat to get to 45, 47% in Kentucky. It's really hard to get to 50 plus one. And the reason why the federal candidates in Kentucky never do, but Bashir did, is because Bashir kept it about Kentucky, whereas the federal candidates inevitably get drawn into politics of New York or California or, or the coasts that in Kentucky are absolutely toxic to that margin that decides elections there. And so you can have Mitch McConnell being the, you know, one of the most unpopular politicians in his own state amongst his own party, and Democrats will look and say, wow, he's vulnerable. But when it comes right down to it, they would rather have somebody that they don't really like who's going to defend their values than somebody who they think, you know, Amy McGrath, unfortunately for her, got tied into that and got trounced. Federal races often take on those national things because you're going back to Washington, D.C. a lot. You're hearing from your consultants who are based in New York, Washington, L.A., wherever it is they are. These are the things the donors want to hear about. And so you suddenly get sucked into this vortex of issues that have little to nothing to do with the state you're actually running to represent, but become nationalized both intentionally and by happenstance because that gravity to talk about national issues, as Trigby was talking about, becomes almost unbearable. That's so true. And it sets up this dynamic that frustrates me where Democrats don't seem to be able to win races that they're not supposed to win. There's very few examples of the 2016 dynamic where Donald Trump ekes out these narrow victories in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan and defies everybody's expectation and win. There's very few examples of Democrats doing that. And they really need to get into a position where winning those kinds of unexpected races, where when the climate, like at least the macro environment right now, is against them where they're able to, in these key states, find those non-national issues, those localized, whether it's Kentucky or Arizona or Ohio or Pennsylvania, that are going to separate them from whatever winds are blowing and bring them across the line. And they're just not good at that. Jeff, you mentioned when we worked for Republicans, it was just win, baby, right? It was Al Davis. You do what you got to do to win. 
we thought that there was an underlying ideology. We believed that the people we were working for really did want to serve. There was a conservative viewpoint of governance. Maybe I was just far too naive. In a lot of times, you were willing to move around the chessboard, such as it was, to be able to bring in more voters. The Dems seem to say, like, these are our boundaries and not dare one of you cross them. Now, there are some, you know, maybe it's pro-choice, pro-life that are pretty hard and fast. Maybe the Second Amendment, too. Maybe that's not even as hard as fast as the choice issue. But it always seems that because the Republicans have now what I would call a moral flexibility is too kind, they are able and willing to move, unlike Dems who seem to get caught not only in their own, you know, the ideology of the purity that they're afraid of upsetting, but also then, to Jeff's point, Trigby, they're on defense a lot. Here's the thing. The difference between Republicans and Democrats is, to some degree, Republicans focus on the winning and the ends justify the means. And that's the part that we all got sick of because they're willing to accept any ends. And any means. Yeah, and any means. But the reality is, when you think about where the races lie, that's not a big secret that are going to decide whether democracy survives or not. And in a lot of ways, they're also the same places that where who controls Congress, certainly the Senate, rests. And so they need to think about it in a much more macro approach, not buckets of House, Senate, governors, independently. It's all part of a game where everything is together. Those separations no longer exist in terms of what the other side is doing. But everybody has their benefactors, the big super PACs, the big campaign committees, and you know they, they have to go back to that well. And so we are, as Stuart likes to say, we are lucky in that we don't have a party, we don't have a candidate, we don't have a policy agenda. Therefore, we have the political and creative freedom to go see the world as it is, not as we wish it were. So let's talk a little bit about that. As you guys were looking around the country, Let's just talk a little bit about our approach to targeting these races. So the first one, focus on winning races that are critical to 2024's outcome. So I'll just preamble by saying we have a vivid imagination and we always have to be more imaginative because our imagination is never vivid enough that there are now people who would not cross that line, that singular Rubicon in 2020 and early 2021 to take the election away from Joe Biden and give it to Donald Trump illegally. Who would now do that? If you look at, for example, the Republican primary for governor in Wisconsin, there's a huge effort in the state legislature to decertify the 2020 election, whatever that means, if they get the governorship. Rebecca Kleinfleisch, who's the leading candidate, former lieutenant governor Scott Walker, had been holding off making a comment on that. One of her opponents is the state legislator who is pushing it. She ultimately now has said, yes, she would support decertifying. There is no such thing as decertifying election after it's been decertified. She's now all in on that, too. That in a state that is one of the four that will be pivotal to determining who wins in 2024 is something that, as Timur and I were thinking about what races matter the most, said, yeah, that's a huge deal. It's similar to what's going on in the dynamic in Arizona. Only in the Wisconsin case, it doesn't matter who's running against Tony Evers. All of them are in favor of that. That makes that race, in some ways, if you want to have a shot at ever winning the presidency again, that makes that governor's race even more important, potentially, than who controls the Senate or, or the House. Not that those aren't important, but it elevates that election 
massively. You know, Jeff mentioned the governor's race in Michigan. That's what we were really trying to account for because you don't want to come out of the 2022 cycle with very limited possibilities that if a Democrat's elected, they have no chance because the system is rigged. I mean, that's what people like Ann Applebaum and others, or like what I've seen in places like Hungary or Turkey, that's how they rig the system. The election is all the trappings, but the outcome is predetermined. That would help predetermine the outcome. But Jeff, let me ask you this. Let's take it down to the individual voter level. Maybe not, not a dyed-in-the-wool Democrat who our issue with them is getting them to turn out, not whether or not they would support the right candidate necessarily. But what does the individual, let's say, independent voter in Michigan, like, are they listening to something like, you have to vote for Whitmer because democracy dies if she goes? That could be a tough sell. It definitely could be. I mean, that sounds almost hyperbolic for most people. It sounds unbelievable. The sky is falling. They tend to discount that kind of alarmism, even if it is true. The trick is to identify those areas, those races that are going to be pivotal in whether or not democracy survives past November of 2024, and where our sense of justice, our sense of right and wrong might be pinged by Mitch McConnell being majority leader again after 2022, it matters less, according to the way we've scored these races, who wins the Ohio Senate race or the Pennsylvania Senate race than who wins the governor's offices in Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Arizona. And elections, in, in looking at things from a perspective of this pro-democracy organization, choices have to be made. You can't choose everything. No one group can say, okay, we're going to defend Nancy Pelosi's speakership, Chuck Schumer's position as majority leader, elect Democrat governors in all the key states, you know, bring secretaries of state and attorney generals across the finish line in these races as well, and hopefully flip some legislative chambers. National political parties don't have that kind of bandwidth. So we have to narrow where we can make the most difference when it comes to the preservation of democracy. And the other thing, Jeff, that you and I talked about after doing that is if, Reed, if we went to you the day after the election and said, Democrats won, and Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Arizona in the governor's races, what that would also probably be saying to you is they won the United States Senate because there's Senate races in all three of those states, in three of the four, that turnout is going to be driven actually not by the Senate races, but by the governor's races. If Tony Evers wins in Wisconsin, Ron Johnson loses. If Katie Hobbs wins in Arizona, Mark Kelly has won for sure. If the Democrat has won in Pennsylvania, then Fetterman or Connor Lamb is more than likely the U.S. senator because they've gotten turnout. So we've also tried to look at where down ballot, and we can also tell you there's House races in all four of those states, but particularly actually Michigan, Arizona, and Pennsylvania, more than Wisconsin, because it's pretty gerrymandered, that are also likely would tip or that Democrats have to hold that exponentially increases their chances of winning the House or creating at least enough coalition if, you know, which our fifth race that we say from just a democracy standpoint is actually the Wyoming Republican primary. The general doesn't matter at all. It's either going to be Hagman or Cheney, who's the member of Congress. But we have that race rated as the fifth most important race for democracy. Why? 
Is that primary matter so much? Well, first of all, Donald Trump is all in on beating Liz Cheney. So if Liz Cheney survives, it demonstrates to Republicans they can speak out. Two, Hagman would be a vote within the seditionist caucus. Three, if, God forbid, an election were thrown to the U.S. Congress, you would assume that Cheney would vote for whatever candidate that won. Hagman would vote for whatever the Republicans wanted her to vote for. Well, that elevates how important it is for 2024. Hagman clearly is a liberal. And in terms of control, it's one seat that matters. So let's talk about the House and the Senate. I think the other part, too, about the way that you guys are describing this is, is that it is a three-dimensional viewpoint. Because in the House, right, I mean, there are folks who have to say, we have to hold the House, have to hold the House, have to hold the House. I think we would agree with that. But again, more on the lines of if you get a Republican House of Representatives, it'll be all investigations all the time. It will be a potential impeachment of Biden, potential impeachment of Harris, all the other machinations that they do. And I'll break some of my own news here, guys. If Republicans take the House, I don't think it really matters if it's McCarthy or somebody else, because I think you're going to get the same outcome, which is either Kevin McCarthy, who's trying desperately one last time not to get eaten by the tiger, so he'll go along with anything, or a Jim Jordan, who is the tiger. So, I mean, how do we look at these House races? Because to your point, Trigby, there's something like Wyoming, which is not on the Democrats list, right? It's on Democratic donors lists, I think, but not necessarily on the DCCC's list. The Democrats, you know, we've seen this when they run quality candidates in lots of seats, they will win some, Jeff, to your point, that they don't expect to, but also convincing them, okay, you've got to target more than eight races can be sometimes difficult. So take me through the congressional dynamic a little bit. I would start with this, Reed. When you think about the House, there's four potential outcomes. One, Republicans win an overwhelming majority. And in winning that majority, you have far more of, for lack of a better term, the seditionist Freedom Caucus, Jim Jordan people, and Jim Jordan is elected speaker. Second possibility is Republicans win the Congress overwhelmingly, the House. Kevin McCarthy gets what he's been running around telling donors, 20 sane and rational Republicans, and he's elected speaker. Those outcomes are the same. Third option is Democrats win the House by a small amount and retain the House. And the fourth potential outcome is Republicans win by five seats, eight seats, 10 seats, whatever it is. But a group of Republicans says, we aren't having you, Kevin, or certainly not Jim Jordan as speaker. And they try and cut some kind of deal between the two to elect a speaker and form the Congress. Each of those outcomes, the first two, as you said, McCarthy is speaker, Jordan is somebody like Jim Jordan is speaker, are the same outcome. The other two outcomes are very different when it comes to looking at it for the future of what does it mean for democracy. And in fact, you could almost make the case that the last one I identified might in fact be the best because it would force sort of a centrist coalition house. Second best or equal to that would be Democrats prevailing. But that's going to be really hard in this environment. Jeff, I mean, you're sitting there again, as we mentioned in Michigan, you've got someone like an Alyssa Slotkin sitting there. She'll be in a target race. There'll be an, I think there's another one, Kildee. How do you see this? Because again, I think that there's a fear, at least as we understand it, among Democrats that, you know, especially with things like the January 6th committee, first, that comes to an end in a Republican House immediately, I would assume. And secondly, the Republicans will ramp up the investigation Benghazi machine almost immediately, I would guess. They'll, they'll get rid of January 6th and they'll spin up the border or whatever the hell it is. Laptop. Right? Hunter's laptop. 
Well, I think it underscores the dynamic that's going to be at work in these states. You know, we're, we're looking at this national macro environment where right now there's definitely a headwind that Democrats are running into. But state by state, when you really boil things down in Michigan, for example, right now, I would much rather be Gretchen Whitmer and the Democrats than the Republicans leading gubernatorial candidates to oppose her. Really the same in Pennsylvania. I would rather be in Josh Shapiro's position than the Republicans' position. And if these top-of-the-ticket Democrats are able to separate from this national macro environment and run on where they're able to separate themselves as the sane, rational candidate against this unpredictable, dangerous candidate, and the Republicans seem to be doing all they can to play into that narrative, it's going to set the stage for these down-ballot races, whether it's Secretary of State or whether it's Alyssa Slotkin or other competitive congressionals, where they're going to have a little bit of a, perhaps of a tailwind, or certainly not that kind of strong headwind that we're looking at today from when we look at national polls. If in these key states, these four or five states, if the Dems are able to kind of set up their own mini-climate within those states, they have a chance to survive and democracy has a chance to thrive. Let's talk about that because, you know, the last piece is we've talked about the places where we're likely to play and we'll get specific into those races here in a minute. But let's also talk about the Republican candidates, which is these elections, to Jeff's point, Trigby, aren't going to occur in a vacuum. Some of these people like a Carrie Lake or a Garrett Saldano in Michigan or one of the two kooks in Pennsylvania they're outside the bounds even of kooky. They're freaking weird. They're, you know, 2020 deniers. They're, you know, everybody who doesn't agree with me is a pedophile. They're for book burning. They're for all this stuff that even if you consider yourself a nominal Republican, you're like, what the fuck is wrong with that guy? Herein lies an opportunity for all of us at the Lincoln Project and for people who are listening to this podcast and, and more broadly for Democrats, people who care about democracy in the democracy versus autocracy fight. Let's use Georgia as an example. And I know Brian Kemp, among some of the people who listen to us, they probably don't think highly of him because of the voting rights bill. But it's Brian Kemp who did the right thing in the face of pressure from Trump, who Trump has as enemy number 1A with Cheney in Wyoming of people that he and his entire universe want to take out, running against David Perdue, who would overturn the election in Georgia. Kemp is probably going to prevail. You have a high-profile Senate race with Herschel Walker, who is Trump's anointed guy. He's running because Trump backed him, and he's all in on MAGA. There is a massive opportunity in a state like that to drive a wedge between one Republican candidate who is on the pro-Trump side and one who isn't in camp. There are going to be opportunities like that in House races, Senate races, governor's races across the country. And where they happen further up the food chain, they provide the opportunity to divide in ways around the country that don't work well for Republicans. Basically, there is the potential for a civil war in the Republican Party going on in the middle of the election environment. Same is true in, in Arizona. If you have Robson winning the governor's primary, who is backed by Cindy McCain, and Blake Master is, is the standard bearer for the Senate on the Republican side, you literally have Donald Trump's candidate running against Cindy McCain's. 
in Arizona, that has, again, the potential to become a major point of division to help people like Kelly or Hobbs or Stacey Abrams or Warnock. Right. Because let's just go back to Georgia for a second, Jeff, because you could have a situation, in fact, if Kemp, and it looks like he will be victorious in the primary, is in the primary, you could have Trump go out there and say, I don't care who you vote for, but don't vote for that guy. Look, even if it's only good enough for five points, that might be the ballgame. Oh, absolutely. Because he might keep Buckhead, but he's going to lose Dalton by 30 because people just stayed home. And you could even make an argument, too, is that if they stay home for the, the top of the ticket, they just stay home altogether. Trump doesn't care at all about majorities or the party. He cares only about those who are personally loyal to him, not the other way around. And so Kemp committed the unforgivable sin. Therefore, he will pay the ultimate price as far as Trump is concerned. Right. And we remember that going back to January 5th, 2021, that just the added nature of Donald Trump being a little squishy on Purdue and Luffler, and then Roger Stone running around the state saying neither one of these people are loyal to Donald Trump. Now, did the Democrats get their turnout going? They did. But did it also help that there were probably tens of thousands of hardcore MAGA folks who are like, to your point, Jeff, they don't care about anything. It's not that they don't care about the office or the party. They, they don't care about any of it. So if, if Mr. Trump or his people say, don't do this, they're unlikely to do it. But I guess we'll see that as we go through here. Now we're taping this on Monday, May 2nd. We have a, an Ohio primary coming up. We have a Pennsylvania primary coming up. We have one more coming up too, right? Georgia. Georgia is the 24th. And so if you're sitting there, you're the Democrats, you're the Abrams campaign in Georgia, you're kind of torn. You think, okay, maybe David Perdue presents a better foil, but Brian Kemp winning presents a scenario where the Republicans are completely unable to come together. And there are those tens of thousands who just sit this one out, not just the governor's race, but down ballot. And that could give the Democrats the perfect storm to sweep these races in Georgia. And if you thought that on the Abrams campaign, Trigby, that they could wait and watch, keep their powder dry on really contentious issues, keep it about bread and butter issues, kitchen table issues, stay out of all of the stuff on democratic social issues, which is their comfort zone, then you could also see some of those Bannon line voters willing to come across the line because Kemp is more chaos or it's just like I'm sick of him or whatever the case might be. But the more they sort of skew left in that case, too, the more that they might bring back some of those Trump voters because they're like, well, I can't stand Brian Kemp, but I'm not going to vote for Stacey Abrams. If I were running the Warnock campaign, I would be trying to stay out of the governor's race as much as possible. Let's pretend you're Herschel Walker, Reed, because, you know, I know you're working out a lot now. So you're down in your basement doing 6,000 sit-ups. You know, I tried to walk on a tailback at the University of Texas, and they, they told me that my services were not needed. <laughs> but they did hand me a collection of dirty towels and told me I could wash them. <laughs> well, so if you're Herschel Walker and you get asked, Kemp's your nominee for governor, are you voting for Brian Kemp? What do you say? Because if you say you're voting for Brian Kemp, Donald Trump's going to go bananas. If you say you aren't voting for Brian Kemp, you're causing massive division and problems for Brian Kemp. Or he'll say, I, you know, I'm focused on my own race or some happy horse shit like that. He might, but they can keep pressing that. Why won't Herschel Walker say who he's supporting for governor, right? That is a far better attack than offering policy. 
that is actually the kind of thing where you just wear him down. Why won't he answer the question, et cetera? That's the kind of stuff that Republicans do far better than Democrats. And the reality is Herschel Walker can't answer that question. And so it's anything you can to drive that division becomes ultimately a very good thing. And you're kind of seeing it in some of the polling from Georgia. There was one that came out in the last three days. Warnock's up by two or three on Walker and Kemp is up on Abrams. So you're already seeing that dynamic playing out. And it's an interesting dynamic because there's been other states and other places where that dynamic has played out in the past. In fact, one of the things that Jeff and I were looking at when we were going through races was exit polling and the exit polling in 2018 in Arizona. You know, about 20% of cinema voters voted for Ducey for governor. You know what percentage of Ducey voters voted for cinema? Almost none. There is the potential for that in a state like Georgia or in a state like Arizona. And that division is really where our efforts at the Lincoln Project can come in and play along those Bannon lines and along that divide in ways that have the potential to tip a bunch of those races. Well, and, and Jeff, also, because these people, whether or not it's a Carrie Lake or a Ron Johnson or a Dr. Oz or a Herschel Walker, they're so kooky to begin with that they're all on a hair trigger. And that's where we can come in with you know what we call our audience of one strategy, which is find the thing that we know will set them off engage them. And as they engage with us, they turn towards us, turn away from their opponent. When we do it right, it's like the train and uh, the fugitive with Harrison Ford, like jumping off of it, right? Like they can't control themselves. You know, after Youngkin won in Virginia, all the pundits said, look, you know, that's how to do it is, is to create this kind of hybrid thread that needle, be just Trumpy enough. But, you, you know, you wear your Patagonia vest and and appeal to the uh, white college educated voters in the suburbs and bring them home. And so the inclination is that everybody thinks that's going to be the recipe that Republicans follow now in 2022. The problem is they don't have Glenn Youngkin's running virtually anywhere. They have these tinfoil hat wearing horse paste eating kooks. You can't turn a Carrie Lake into a Glenn Youngkin. There is not enough lipstick to put on that pig. All right, gents. Well, we're going to leave it there for today. And this concludes the first part of our conversation with our Lincoln Project senior advisors, Trigby Olson and Jeff Timmer. Until next time, you can follow Trigby on Twitter at Trigby Olson, and you can follow Jeff on Twitter at Jeff Timmer. And as always, you can follow me at Reed Galen. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you on part two. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on the Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter pages. And we'd love you to join us for our newest show, Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Friday at noon Eastern on our YouTube channel. For the Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode.